This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello again, I'm John Gidley, and welcome to another trip into the football attic. I've decided to break from my current format, at least temporarily, of detailing forgotten games, players, teams, etc. in NFL history, just so I don't run out of ideas too quickly. For the next couple of shows, I'm going to switch to an interview format, interviewing people uh, who have a a similar kind of uh, knowledge and interest in the NFL as I do. And I figured that there was no better place to start than right here in the house with my dad, Chris Gidley, who (laughs) probably, uh, if if he wasn't into football, I probably wouldn't have been either. So... Dad, welcome. Thanks for being my uh, my first ever guest on the Football Attic. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you for having me. So you are a lifetime fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. That is correct. Uh, it's Eagles fans of my generation who are my age would probably be... I, I think they're pretty spoiled with uh, the Super Bowl win three years ago, a lot of the good uh, Donovan McNabb teams in the 2000s. Uh, they'd probably be pretty surprised to learn that the Eagles, when you were a kid, particularly in the early 70s, were one of, if not the worst team in the NFL. There were, uh, there was a period where the Eagles were uh, just frighteningly bad. Um, if you go, say, uh, in my lifetime, let's say, uh, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, those years were so bad. Were the pre-Dick Vermeil Eagles. Mm-hmm were were bad the eagles were a doormat a, a real doormat but they looked good but they looked great in those but uniforms the, the white, white oh the white helmet eagles the white helmet and the my green, goodness the green wing and the actual uh, kelly green so you, oh the majesty the majesty of it all yes so uh you don't really remember the eagles playing at franklin field do you remember I, he, I, your memory kicks in with that predates my memory around just the time they started by a little that. bit yeah 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 so my my Memory of the Eagles uh, would be ju- their entry into Veteran Stadium, and and after that, um, I guess probably my earliest Eagle, one of my earliest Eagles memories would be uh, a game in Washington it, at RFK in the snow uh, in December of seventy three seventy three. The same day, it must have snow, snowed up and down the East Coast, uh, the same day that O.J. Simpson broke the rushing record for 2,000 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, that that day, I remember that distinctly, watching mm-hmm. that on television. Yeah, you were flipping back and forth between the Eagles game on CBS and the and the Bills-Jets game on NBC. I, I guess so, yeah. So, around that time, 73 was also the first year that uh, Mike McCormick became the head coach of the Eagles. I believe, what was he, offensive line coach or something in Washington for George Allen? Uh that was also the first year that the Eagles acquired Roman Gabriel in a trade with the Rams, who had been one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. I think he was the MVP in 1969. And even though that was kind of the tail end of his career and his Eagles years weren't that productive, he was probably the best quarterback the Eagles had in a decade, probably since Sonny Jurgensen. I w- you're probably right about that. He was, let's face it, about Roman Gabriel. Um, the trade was very high risk. They gave up probably way too much for him. A lot of draft picks. And yeah... And uh, he was at the tail end of his career where it, you could maybe bleed two or three good seasons out of Roman Gabriel. I don't know what the thinking was. Um, he was, uh, I saw Roman Gabriel probably in his first training camp at Widener, uh, went with my uncle. And I remember going there in the summer. Uh, Harold Carmichael was a big 
phenomenon too because simply because he was six feet eight inches yeah hard to uh, miss him and you couldn't miss him uh at the same time um there was a lot of excitement around gabriel but it never really materialized i don't mm-hmm. think you know he, he had some pretty good stats in 73 the team around him was not very good i think they only won about five games he did the best he could yeah i, I think I, I think even still i think he ended up with the most passing touchdowns in, in the league that year probably took a real beating too behind that oh yeah offensive line. non-existent offensive yeah, line exactly. so the eagles what really turned the corner was hiring Dick Vermeil in 1976. He had just upset uh, Ohio State as the head coach of UCLA in the 76 Rose Bowl. And even though those those first two years were pretty uh, lackluster, uh, he what really made the difference was the hiring of Vermeil and also uh, the Eagles trading for another Rams quarterback, Ron Jaworski. I think so. Jaworski may uh, not be a Hall of Famer uh, as a player, but... I think he was he was just the right guy for uh, someone like Dick Vermeil to to kind of groom into a system or a way of thinking, and I think that was important as far as Vermeil's sort of reclamation project of the franchise from from rock bottom to from the basement up, and I think Jaworski played a big part in that. Yes, as, yeah. Speaking of your uncle, uh, was that the same uncle that had season tickets? Yes. What amazed me in that era was 1973 was the first year that uh, Congress lifted the blackout rule uh, where home games could be shown in the local market finally, uh, as long as they were sold out within, I think, 72 hours. Even as bad as the Eagles were in that era, they didn't have a home game blacked out until 1977. Even at, like, rock bottom in those Mike McCormick years, they still sold out every single game. It's true. It's true. Uh, There was always a rabid uh, following of the team. Um even in the lean years, even in the lean years. And then I think uh, even pre-Buddy Ryan, uh, that Dick Vermeil era of Eagles football really um, created the sort of following that you see today. Um, it goes back a long ways. I'm sure people that were there at Franklin Field in, in 1960s would tell you that it was always there. Uh, but I, I think what you see today was probably... Uh, the result of that Vermeil era. Keep in mind, um, going from firing Mike McCormick to hiring Vermeil and a really a pretty poor Eagles team, he needed to rebuild that team a lot. Uh, I think they only won four games each of his first two years. Yeah, it was rough going in the beginning. Uh, but he turned it around, and to this day, I think people, prior to the Super Bowl victory a few years ago, I people my age would tell you that the great Eagles memory was beating the Dallas Cowboys for the championship at that stadium in the first week of January, 1981. Well, that, yeah, that's what changed everything because the Eagles prior to that, had, uh, they were basically the doormat of the NFC East, mm-hmm. but Dallas, mm-hmm. Washington, the St. Louis Cardinals a couple of times won the division. Uh, the only team that was at the Eagles level and not in a good way was the Giants. And uh, they typically beat up on the Giants in those years. Uh, I I think so. The Giants probably went through their own period of pretty lean years mm-hmm. a, a, during that period. Um, ask anybody my age or from my generation, and they'll tell you the single great memory is the Eagles beating the Cowboys and Wilbur Montgomery taking that t- running that touchdown fifty yards. And that's how, uh, yeah, that's in the it, like almost the first play from scrimmage, second, third play from scrimmage, and boom, the game was probably over at that lights point. Lights out. Yeah, lights out. Yeah, things. Went bad in a hurry, though, because they lost to the Raiders in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. They lost early in the playoffs the next year to the Giants. Mm-hmm. They missed the playoffs in 82 in the strike-shortened year, and Dick Vermeil resigned because he was uh, burned out. 
two pretty two pretty mediocre years. Well, actually, three of uh, Marion Campbell, the Swamp Fox Eagles defensive coordinator, became head coach. Uh, pretty forgettable three years. 1984. A good guy who probably deserved better. It, it's true, yeah. Uh, the defense was still good, but the offense was just totally non-existent. Right. Uh, 1984. A lot of people would probably be surprised to learn this if they never did know it. Uh, towards the end of the 1984 season, the Eagles announced that they were going to be moving to Arizona at the end of the regular season because uh, apathy had kind of set in. A lot of the home games weren't selling out, and uh, the Eagles owner, Leonard Toast, uh, supposedly had some uh, gambling debts that needed to be paid off. <laughs> Do you remember this? Yes, I remember it very well. <laughs> the... Uh... I remember this very well. I and I remember. I remember the 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 uh, the threat was real. It wasn't just sort of a sort of veiled threat, like "give me everything I want from from the owner" or "I'm moving to Phoenix." They, like they were packing the bags, mm-hmm. I think, uh, ready to roll. Uh, it took a lot to keep them here. There was a lot of reasons to to want to keep them here in a large sort of eastern market, but at the same time, uh, the threat was very real. I, I remember that. So you, as we mentioned, you grew up with uh, with the Kelly Green, and I can't imagine how shocking it was to have grown up with a, a pretty simplest, pretty standard, by-the-book Kelly Green that was only tweaked maybe once or twice, and then all of a sudden in 1996 they come out in Midnight Green with the helmets with the 3D wing. You said when they came out that they looked like an Arena League team. It, I did, I, I did I, and I still feel that way. Um, to go from... The white helmet era, which some people really don't like, but um, I love it because not only is the white helmet kind of striking with that green wing, if we're going to talk about uniforms, making statements or whatever, uh, the uh, they wore a, a really nice dark green jersey with it. Mm-hmm. Then to go to the sort of uh, Jaworski, Vermeil era um, uh, uniforms, which were pretty typical of the NFL at that time, but really good and a really nice green helmet with a silver wing. Uh, then this, the Buddy Ryan, Randall Cunningham era uniforms, a little, little more green, a little more, a little more Kelly green, equally as good, uh, to just sort of um, dis, discard all of that for what they're wearing today. Which, at sometimes, given the proper lighting, I'm not even sure it, that it's green. It comes out as sort of a tealy blue. It's true. Or something, it, especially if an image is really blown up, like mm-hmm. in, a, in a magazine, it looks like kind of of a, of a bluish teal. I don't think it typifies the team at all. I don't think it. it I don't think it uh, accentuates anything. I think it's time to move uh, to a different uniform, and a I, better one. I think there's finally enthusiasm growing <laughs> because uh, people, for whatever reason, seemed uh, content with Midnight Green. At least the majority of them did for a couple of years, and now there seems to be a growing contingent that says, you know, let's let's get a move on, let's bring the Kelly Green back, especially considering what some of the other teams did. The Browns went back to normal. The Chargers just blew everybody away this offseason, yes. going back to their yes. powder blue. Uh, hopefully the Dolphins are right behind them, bringing back that classic teal. I, I hope so. Um, I hope the, uh, the groundswell of uh, support for the change in uniform is enough to actually get somebody to do it. <laughs> The the Super Bowl victory three years ago mm-hmm. uh, obviously meant the world to the city and its fans. Mm-hmm. The Eagles have had a lot of of pretty bad memories where all you need to do is say two or three words and you just go, oof. Yes, the fog, sure. The Fog Bowl, uh, all those NFC Championship everything. game losses, the last game at the Vet against Tampa Bay, 
Was that Super Bowl victory enough to right all of those wrongs? Yes, in a word, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm good for a lifetime now, (laughs) if if that's the way you need to look at it. And would it be great to have dynasties and things like that, like the Patriots? That would be wonderful. Um, At the same time, I'm I'm okay with that. That singular Super Bowl victory and the manner that they did it, uh, the manner in which they did it was uh, against a really against perhaps the great team of this era, the New England Patriots, mm-hmm. and they beat them in a shootout. Yep, it not even even if you didn't have a rooting interest, it was still a wildly entertaining game. It was, it was, and uh, for them to get a victory like that, um, and the parade and everything, that all the ghosts are gone now. All all the bad feelings are gone. Yep, yep, Nick Foles. Uh, when you grew up, there were only another way that football fans my age are kind of spoiled today is because it seems as though almost every game is nationally televised. Back then in your era, you probably had one Eagles game on CBS, one AFC game, maybe yes. maybe two if you were lucky on NBC, or maybe CBS would have a doubleheader if the Eagles were on the road. Yes. And then there was Monday Night Football on ABC, and I think the sad thing about Monday Night Football today is that it, it just feels like another game, and it's not an event that it probably was when you were a kid. Is that right? Um, I think you're right about that. And uh, I, I love the fact that we can pick and choose all these games and everything now, but uh, there seems to be... Uh, maybe a little bit too much. Too much might be might be uh, t- too much is too much. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I it's guess true. Yeah, the, uh, I, I um, remember I remember a guy saying uh, that they should have uh, back in the seventies. They abided by the old uh, show business adage: leave them wanting more. Leave them wanting more, and uh, I guess everybody, uh, probably the people that grew up in this uh, area during my lifetime, uh, will tell you that uh, most of the Eagles games were at one o'clock. And then you switched channels over to NBC, and Dick Enberg would always do uh, the West Coast game mm-hmm. or a game from Denver. But it was San Diego, Oakland, Denver, uh, that that era. And Dick from uh, Dick Enberg always showed up uh, at that four o'clock game with Merlin Olson. Oh my! Oh my! Uh, what what made them great? And you you probably. I know that you think Pat Summerall is probably the best uh, announcer that you've ever heard, especially his years with Tom Brookshire. Yes, Pat Summerall was the best. I think Pat Summerall was the best play, play-by-play guy in football um, that I can remember that I've in my lifetime. But Dick Enberg and Merlin Olsen in that era were a very a very strong counterpart, especially it's close, number two, especially it's close. considering the chemistry that they had because they had known each other for so long. Because prior to joining NBC, Dick Enberg was the voice of the Rams. And, of course, Merlin Olsen was on those Rams teams with the Fearsome Foursome. So they had known each other for probably about a decade before they started uh, announcing together at NBC. Dick Enberg was a great announcer. Uh, Merlin Olsen was a pretty good color analyst. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Pat Summerall, I think, was the gold standard. Um, and he really had no he had no training or anything in, in radio or television. That's true. Um, he was a former NFL player, star, uh, and... It, sort of made the transition to broadcasting in a big way. Flawlessly. Yes. Uh, also in that era, Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire co-hosted a show from NFL Films called This Week in Pro Football, which would air about the uh, Friday or Saturday before the week began, and they'd recap the games from weeks past with the classic NFL Films music. Yes. Uh, only, only that and I think the, the 90s era NFL primetime with Chris Berman and Tom Jackson are probably the two best highlight shows I've ever seen. Sure. Um, 
it, it's what made NFL films. NFL films probably something very special um, it, as far as the four major sports go. Uh, I think that's what sets the National Football League apart from, from others uh, is they filmed everything and they have it uh, performed uh, at a at a really high level of uh, of craftsmanship. Someone called it the biggest in-house PR machine in the world. I think so. I, I'd agree with that. Um, it's really amazing. Their history is um, is committed to film uh, in in a way that never really grow. It never gets dated or, or old. Yep. It actually only gets better. Yep. With you, age, you get those uh, you get those special orders in the mail, mm-hmm. and the the quality's still the same. We really mm-hmm. have the Sables to thank because uh, they had. They had the foresight to say, people are going to want to see this in the future. People sure. are going to want to look back on this and say, oh, I remember that. Those were the days. Uh, it's really amazing that, and, and it's been able to hold up through all these years, too. It's still basically the same product. Obviously, uh, this, both of the Sables have passed away, unfortunately. There's no more Sadly. There's no more John Facenda. There's no more Harry Callis. But it's still, at its root, it still completes the mission that the Sables uh, sought out to perform in the 60s that football is a glorious game especially in slow motion with you know epic (laughs) epic wagner sounding music in the background Uh, not to get too far uh off the uh, off the path of course but uh if you're if you're talking about the people who who revolutionized football the game that we know it today that the monster uh the money-making monster that it is now um, is Pete Rozelle mm-hmm. because he had a, a background in public relations and he elevated football out of the dark ages into something that everybody wanted to see, number one. Number two, Rune Arledge at ABC for, for creating Monday Night Football and making it a primetime event as opposed to just the Sunday church game. Um, also, I would say <laughs> Joe Willie Namath, for making it into show business. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to him, there was nothing quite like him. After that, it was all copycats of Joe Willie Namath and I and the Sable family for, for actually being the, the sort of uh, arch, archive, archivists of... The curators. Yeah, the curators of, uh, of the National Football League. It's true, uh, especially with Namath, the Jets beating the Colts in the Super Bowl is probably what changed football. Completely, absolutely changed it. Uh, gave legitimacy to the American uh, Football League uh, to the point where they had to merge after that. Mm-hmm. There had to be a merger. And then the Chiefs doubled down the next year and beat the Vikings yes, in the Super Bowl. exactly. Uh, also with Rune Arledge, not only uh, making the NFL into a primetime event with Monday Night Football, but also probably building ABC back from the ground up uh, prior to that, uh, people call them the almost broadcasting company. It's true. Uh, they really made a network out of that, starting with Monday Night Football. It's true. No, it, it's absolutely true. Well, Dad, I want to thank you for uh, being the very first guest on the Football <laughs> Attic. It's great being here. Thank you. It's an honor to be your first guest. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, I'm lining up a couple of other guests uh, along this line, sharing their football memories. And uh, I hope to see you next week. In the meantime, check out all the other great podcasts here on the Sports History Network. And follow me on Twitter at JFG Sports. Until next time, this is John Gidley. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.